and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. So a little bit about me. I work as a mental performance coach and an executive coach. I love the work that I do. I love learning about people's stories and their mindsets and helping them to cultivate their best mindset for performance I work with them on unlocking their potential and seeing the world in different possibilities. So a lot of these conversations are aimed to find out how others have unlocked their potential or how they see the world differently than perhaps how I see it. And I love these conversations because we really find out who are these people and what are they currently doing. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, go over to iTunes and hopefully you enjoyed it and write us a review give us a rating. It really helps us as we try to build this thing out. And for those of you that have already done that, thank you so much. Also, if you enjoyed today's conversation, share it. Share it on social, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, whatever your cup of tea is. Uh, Go over there and share it. The more that we can share these conversations, the more we can share these amazing people, these intentional performers with the world, and hopefully all boats will rise with a rising tide. Now to today's guest. Dr. Jonathan Fader was introduced to me by a mutual friend. He's in New York City. I'm in Washington, D.C. And I was up in New York and found some time to to chat with him, to learn about his journey and what he's done. And ever since that conversation, he's somebody who I've said, gosh, I'd love to go even deeper with him on the podcast. So here we go. He is a licensed clinical and performance psychologist. He's best known for working with professional athletes in Major League Baseball and the NFL. He's worked with the New York Mets and the New York Giants, both in the NFL and Major League Baseball. He's also the co-founder of Union Square Practice, which is a mental health center. And he also will talk a lot today about Sports Strata, which he also has helped build. And they are a performance coaching group located in New York City. So he is regularly 
working with athletes, performers, entrepreneurs, business people. He works with schools. He works with physicians and also first responder groups such as the New York City Fire Department. He's also going to talk about some of his work today with some extreme athletes that are doing some things that are truly, truly unbelievable. He also does a lot of public speaking. So he speaks uh, to groups on topics such as mindfulness, motivation, and motivational interviewing, which we're going to get into in a lot of depth during this conversation today. Uh, he talks about improving performance, stress reduction, communication, team building, anything that you can think of that comes with the mental side of performance, Dr. Fader hits on. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Dr. Fader. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Dr. Jonathan Fader. Dr. Jonathan Fader, I'm going to call you Fader because that's what you said you would like me to call you. So we're going to call you Fader during this conversation. Uh, my last name is Levinson and I had all kinds of nicknames growing up, Lev, B-Lev, Levy. Um, so I, I get called all kinds of things, mostly good, good things. Um, but I'm excited to rap with you, chat with you. We met a little when while- say, When you say rap, what you mean like freestyle rhyme? Because that's like one of my favorite things to do. Or are you just like, just chat? No, I was actually talking about freestyle rapping. B-Lev is like, that's sort of like a freestyle. That, I feel like you, could, you have some bars with that kind of nickname, B-Lev. So when I was in college, some of the girls would call me B-Lev, but we'll stay away from that. Probably, uh, probably a good, good thing to do there. I'm married now, very happily married. But that's definitely a good I, thing to stay away from. <laughs> we, uh, we do have that in common. So I'm known amongst my friends for freestyling, especially when I was in college. And so perhaps we'll go there at some point and embarrass both of us uh, in front of as many people that listen to this. Oh, I guaranteed embarrass myself. I'm not sure about you, but you know, if we go there, we're definitely, you know, there's going to be some fader embarrassment. Well, you know what fader rhymes with? The first thing that comes to mind. Tell me. Hater. That, you know, I mean, for me, I, I think, you know, it's funny because fader, my dad's called fader. Sometimes actually people call me fader junior. And in sports, I think my favorite nickname that I got over the years was Faderade. Um, and so that's, I think that's really what comes to mind the most. But, you know, like, I, like, I lucked out with that name. Like I, I totally, I mean, you know, you can really get stuck with the doozy for a last name. And somehow that was one of my blessings. I got that last name. Yeah. It's like Fader's a waiter that can be a hater, kind of like AC Slater, something like that, right? Like uh, now you got to put on a beat. <laughs> really gonna battle. I mean, we can't, you know, and yeah. love hard, man. There's like lots of syllables going on there. What do you really even do with that? No, I mean, heaven sent, heaven sent. you got to do like half rhymes. Yeah. There's, there, there's not much to work off the last name, but there's plenty of content for me. Uh, as you get to know me, there's, there's all kinds of stuff uh, to battle with. And so maybe we'll end and we'll see, we'll see what comes of that. And the good news with this is we can always cut it if it sucks. Um, so we have that luxury. Um, yeah. But we, when we met, yeah, we talked about freestyling. We talked about acting and, and all kinds of stuff. And we talked about sports and the psychology of sports. And so when we met, I just loved your energy. I loved your authenticity. Uh, I think you're somebody who is extremely passionate about this work, but also is interested in moving the field forward in, in different ways. So I hope we can do that a little bit during our conversation today. Of course. I mean, that's, I mean for me, I'm glad you said that because... I think fundamentally, one of the things that I really am passionate about is the fact that this field, the idea of sport and performance psychology, I think has been sort of held hostage by us in sport and performance, and that it has so many applications to everything, you know, to all these areas of life. So it's great that there are podcasts like yours and others that are really focused on, you know, giving this information out to people who are even not athletes. 
Yeah. So when did that become a reality for you that this could be leveraged and used outside of sports? So, you know, um, I'm here in New York and, you know, in New York, we have a, a practice here with a, a bunch of folks. Some of them do sport performance psychology here at Sports Strata and some are doing just mental health uh, at Union Score practice. And I, you know, I see people from all different walks of life, Brian. And so, you know, a lot of the folks I see are folks in business, entrepreneurs, um, you know, people who are in finance, uh, people in medicine, surgeons. And I found that that day in, day out, I was using, first of all, analogies from sports. Um, I would talk to people about what it was like to strike out four times um, and how people came back from that. Or I would just talk about, you know, the difference between mentally being a starter versus being a reliever. And those analogies and those metaphors, people really hung on to them. They found that they were really useful. They found that they were um, helpful for understanding their experience. And then as time went on, I started getting deeper into my work in, with athletes, first in the MLB and then in the NFL. I started to realize that a lot of the techniques that I was working on and the ways of approaching performance states or flow states or stress or um, stressful situations were really relevant to people in all walks of life. And not only on the playing field in their work, but also on the playing field at home. They're helpful for things like relationships and parenting as well. Did you get into psychology with sports in mind or what, what got you into psychology? What got me into psychology? Um, I'm one of those weirdos, you know, I mean, I, I, I knew from kind of 16 that I wanted to be likely a psychologist. You know, I, I was, I went to a high school performing arts here in, in New York city in Manhattan. And, um, you know, I was really into acting and the thing that, that drew me into acting was one, I liked performing. I liked, uh, interacting, but also I really was interested in, in people and how they developed. And particularly what was interesting to me is um, how people got to be great. That's always been interesting to me, how people got to maximize their lives and be at their best, you know, what sometimes we call the psychology of improvement. And so when I was in, in high school, I, um, I remember actually I did a showcase. That's when a bunch of actors, you know, perform a scene and agents come. And so a bunch of agents came, acting agents came to see the, the showcase. And I was, I was actually doing it with my girlfriend at the time. And, you know, they, the, they liked our scene. And so I, this agent, this acting agent from the city came and asked me to meet with them. And they asked, said, so what do you want to do? And I was like, well, you know, I don't know. I kind of want to be a psychologist. And they were floored. You know, they were like, what is this kid? How can he sit here in this opportunity and say that? But, Frankly, I've always been drawn to it. I, found, I find that from a very early age, I found that I really want to do something that, that has meaning for me and is meaningful more than anything else. And so, you know, while like anyone, I have aspirations to be successful and have all the things that come with success, I've always just really been fascinated by people and how they develop and how they develop to be great. So I'm curious about why theater? Why did you go to that school? And then also, can you just try to unpack where even you learned about psychology and where at that age that even came into your forefront? Because I think to your point, it's pretty unique to hear a 16 year old say that's, that's something that they want to be when they grow up. Let's see. Well, first I'll say that, um, you know, I think that um, there's a couple things that influenced that. One is it was a factor of where I grew up. I mean, I joke that, you know, you know, basically in my neighborhood, you know, most kids want to be firemen or, or, or 
if you take it like an average five-year-old boy or five-year-old of any gender and say like, what do you want to be? They're like, oh, I want to be a cop. I want to be a fireman. For me, it was sort of like cop, fireman or psychologist. Like, you know, it's Upper West Side of Manhattan. Everybody's a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Um, so I was exposed to that as something that you could do. And it was always interesting to me. And I think the other thing that was really influential was the parents that I have. Um, you know, my, my, both my parents, I would say, are really um, are smart people, but where I think a lot of their intelligence comes from is emotional intelligence. Um, you know, they're people that are excellent listeners and really self-aware and excellent at all the other aspects of emotional intelligence. But I don't, I don't think, I don't know if either of them could name them, but, um, you know, they are excellent at self-regulation and all the things that we now know are um, what makes a really emotionally intelligent person. And, you know, my mom in particular, um, you know, one of the things that was influential to me, I think, in my interest in people is that she had this business um, where, you know, at the time it was kind of dangerous, I think, in our, you know, in the city to have strangers come over. And she had this business where she would write resumes. And so she would write people's CVs or resumes to help them have new jobs. And, you know, she actually, her, you know, what she did was she changed her name to Lee from, from Elizabeth so that people didn't know what, if she was a man or a woman. And she would she would basically like drum up this business. I remember her ad, her line was, are you your resume? Um, and that was like her way of intriguing people into coming. And they, these people would come over to our house and um, she would interview them. And she would, she would, and I remember as a kid, I would listen to these interviews and I would hear my mom basically um, rewriting these people's lives. Um, rewriting the nature of their life and, you know, taking all of the twists and turns and little blips in their resume and helping them to, without um, being dishonest, come up with the best version of themselves. And so being exposed to that and being exposed to like her extremely uh, rigorous and creative and positive method of doing that um, showed me that I, that a lot of what we can achieve in life is based on how we view things. And so I think that exposure really piqued my interest in that and also piqued my interest in, and I still feel this way, you know, I'm 20 years in here. I still feel fascinated by people's stories and especially people who are able to overcome adversity, um, which is sort of part and parcel for almost anyone who, who makes it through a career at any level of being a, uh, a golfer or a, a tennis pro or a marathoner or any of the athletes that we work with, um, or certainly in professional football and baseball, which I've had the most experience working at, working through the tower, you know, that, that, that funnel to get through all those people. So I think those early experiences really affected how I viewed things. And, um, and on a fundamental level, I just, one of my biggest values is that I feel like, most of the meaning in life, excuse me, most of the meaning in life comes from um, relationships, comes from connections with others. And so I always wanted to pursue a career that had that at the forefront. And, and dad, what did dad do? My dad was actually an actor. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad really was the kind of guy that um, is, is the kind of guy that's super creative. Um, and you know, our, our parties, we never had like a Chuck E. Cheese birthday party. Our, our birthday parties were always like, okay, we're going to have a Superman versus Batman play. And, you know, okay, you know, 
luckily I always got to play Superman, so I don't, I don't have that benefit anymore. Um, but you know, the basically he would create these these interactive kind of like comedy improv for you know five to ten year olds. My dad at one point actually had an acting camp that he ran out of our house, uh, where kids would just come over and do that. So my dad. Uh, was that and my dad you know worked in various office jobs but really his biggest passion still is and he still acts from time to time does um you know some tv and um some uh, off-broadway stuff and is that where you got interested in acting was from dad and his influence i guess so i mean i i think i think what happened was i was i actually went to a high school called bronx science here in the city and i was so miserable there and i was like looking for other things to do and a friend of mine was at LaGuardia, which is Performing Arts High School. I had friends there in drama and I had friends there in, uh, in other disciplines. I was like, oh, I'll give it a shot. And I just went to audition. I got in, luckily. Um, and I think that's, that was one of the most formative experiences. And not just because of the creativity and the ability to be creative there, but just the, the it was kind of like the experience I think most people have when they go to college. Uh, in that there was a whole bunch of people that were really open and interested in the same thing. And all my closest friends are still people from that experience. And sports, was there any sports in your childhood and, and where did sports come in? Well, I played basketball um, a bunch, um, you know, not very competitively, but I played it. But I think my exposure really to sports psychology was I had a, when I went to graduate school, um, I had a professor, uh, Ron Smith. And Ron was one of the earliest people in sports psychology. He worked with the uh, Astros, the Houston Astros, for 12 years, like in the late 70s, early 80s. You know, he was out there at times when, like, people like uh, Harvey Dorfman and um, Charlie Merritt from the Indians, like the early, the really early pioneers. Um, and I remember him talking about the Astros back when I was in graduate school. This is now 20 years ago. And I, I just thought to myself, well, that's a thing. Like, I didn't even, I didn't even realize that that, that was really something that could be done. I was studying clinical psychology. I was really interested in, in coaching and, and all of those things, but I didn't really realize that the field was as developed as it was. And so I started really getting into it and asking him about it. And then that's really where my interest in sports. It's funny because I, you know, I like sports, but I'm much less passionate about sports as I am in terms of um, really the psychology of improvement. So, I mean, I really, enjoy sports but what i enjoy most is helping people be their best and i'm less excited about you know um the aspect of that it's sports and more the aspect of like wow this is cool i get to help people who are really excellent and i'm interested in that whether it's you know medicine or the work we've done with firefighters or actors or whatever you know it's i'm interested in working with people that have immense talent and realize that one of the factors that could help them be even more talented and successful and also enjoy what they're doing has to do with their mentality and their mental strength and flexibility. It's so interesting to hear your, your journey. Cause I think about myself, I always used to tell people I wouldn't have gotten into psychology if there wasn't a sport component. And so I went directly for sports psychology when I went to grad school and I got out and then I opened up my practice and started working with athletes and started doing that work. And a couple of years in, I started getting phone calls from people outside of sports and they might've been a CEO of a small business or an owner of a gym, or they might've coached a sport, but also worked or a weekend warrior golfer, but also was doing X in business. And it became pretty apparent to me that 
that idea of I wanted to work in sport. And so I also found psychology with this idea of helping people and working in sport. It was really for me just about the helping people and helping people unlock their potential and seeing possibilities. And for me today, my business is 50% probably what I'd call corporate and 50% sport. And I love that mix because I've found sports to be pretty transactional. Um, people are either winning or they're losing and there's all this emphasis on that. Whereas in business, uh, winning is such a long game and they're always sort of strategizing and building and working and it's less black and white. And I have found a nice mixture there that I think works. Um, and so I'm curious to hear from you as you have developed your practice, what makes you feel most alive when you're with your clients? I think that um, I think the thing that makes me feel most alive is that there is a deep um, understanding between me and the person, um, and I think you know there's kind of levels. I mean, the way the way I think about it is there's you know there's levels of connectivity that we have with people. So you can think of like Oh, how I'm gonna how most people relate with the bank teller, um, or you know their Uber driver or the cab driver, and then you think of like your closest friend, and how quickly you can get super deep with that person. And I mean, I just feel like I and you, people like us, have the privilege of having a, sort of basically a lot of best friends, right? We we have these people that you know, we are, we can get to a very close level of understanding. And in fact, in life, I think that oftentimes we as people don't have that. We don't have those people in our lives. And so I think I feel most alive when I'm working with an athlete or I'm working with someone in business or whoever, and we reach a level of understanding uh, about something in their world of performance that maybe they haven't allowed themselves to really connect with. Um, and I think I feel also really alive when I realize, and these moments don't come every single day, but when I realize that um, the work I've done with someone is not only transformative for them, but has a larger impact on a team or an organization. So for example, you know, I'm working with a CEO right now in business and, you know, what I've come to realize is that Yes, you know, like our work has been transformative for him in terms of the bottom line of his PL. But I I feel that from what he's saying, that it's affected his relationships with the people on his team and even his relationships at home. And so um, you know, I, I think of when I think of I think of Maslow, the famous psychologist who talks about this hierarchy of needs, right? And so um a, a colleague of mine, a friend, Scott Barry Kaufman, is doing this research on on Abraham Maslow, and he's right about to write a book about it, but basically his ideas, you know, so Maslow's idea is basically, as you know, there's these hierarchy of needs and you have to fulfill one before you can move on to the next. And the lowest ends of needs are like, oh, I need food and water. But at the highest level is this idea at the pinnacle of this pyramid is self-actualization, right? And that means basically, right, that you have fulfilled your highest level of talent or potential. But it turns out, actually, Maslow was working on something that was even greater than that. And he was writing about this, uh, you know, the time of his death, that it's not even self-actualization at the highest point. 
But the highest point is this idea of transcendence. And you know, transcendence in some ways of looking at it, at least in my view, is it's not only that I feel like, oh, okay, as a performance psychologist, I'm being effective at helping this person. That would be self-actualization. But now I'm really feeling like my work is the impacting that person and others, that I'm having an effect, a positive effect on some way on, on the world or on people outside of me. And that level of kind of giving back um, to me is where I, I feel most alive. That's awesome. And I'm glad you brought up the CEO because one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is you've worked inside sports organizations and consulted to them. And you work with a CEO and you're talking about if I can help the CEO get clear clarity around how they want to show up, then what is the ripple effect that can occur from that? And in the sports world, you can work with the athlete and, and focus on the athlete. And sure, the athlete could be a leader and a captain and that can have ripple effects. But the place that can really help cultivate the culture and make an impact is with the head coach. And so I'm curious if you've done any work with head coaches. If so, I'd love to hear about what that work looks like and, and what you're experience has been in that world and if not i'd be curious as to why not man we're gonna need another show uh that that question is so i mean your questions are so um textured and interesting brian but i think that one is so complex and the reason i say that is because um i think what you're hitting on is actually the central to me where all of the juices um especially obviously in a team sport but but in any sport is you know, if you can help the coaches to be effective, um, that's really what changes things. So, so backing up to Ron Smith, I have to give him some credit because early on in my conversations with him, the sports psychologist who was with the Astros, who was a professor at UW, you know, where I went to graduate school, you know, one of the things he advocated for, and I really believe in this, was let's say you're working with a baseball team. And this is true with a corporation or anything. You know, you, you certainly can work with the players, or in this case, the people who are being managed. But unless you're reaching the coaching staff, you're really not changing things. You know, players change, things change, um, but coaches, head coaches, and all the supporting coaches are so critical. So um, I really took that to heart, and I've done a lot of work. And I would say the fundamental aspect of that work is twofold. One, trust. Um, so, you know, is there, how much trust is there? Um, between the head coach and the other coaches and how much trust is there between the players and the coaches. Um, that's one. And two is um, communication. Like how do people communicate? So, so in leadership, let's bring it back to business so I can, then I'll bring it back to sports. In leadership, you know, we talk a lot about two forms of leadership, transactional and transformational leadership. And so transactional leadership, as you know, as you know, is, really just about like, okay, you do this for me and I'll do this for you. Or, you know, it's a coach saying, I need you to get this done and the player doesn't. Transformational leadership is much more relationship-based. It's much more about, well, I know who you are and I trust you as a person. And we have a common vision and that's why we're doing this. And so, you know, in order for people to be transformational in their leadership or as a head coach of a team or as a coach of a little league club, um, it really requires learning effective methods of communicating and also developing what we were talking about before this idea of emotional intelligence you know i find that you know athletes basically you know they don't they they're like they're humans i would say you know human first athlete second and so athletes are going to respond to coaches that are 
that are open and connected. And when we think about emotional intelligence, the first things on there, I mean, the highest level are being self-aware and being able to self-regulate. A lot of coaches have trouble with that. And then the next aspects are learning how to empathize and to motivate from within. Those, those abilities are skills. I mean, they're just like, you know, they're just like serving a ball or, or like, like a, a foul shot. I mean, these are, these are fundamental skills that require learning and practice, even for high level coaches. And so a lot of the work I've done with people is to help them be more self-reflective about how well they're doing those things and to help them step away from kind of what I call the one speed model of coaching. What does that mean? Well, I think, you know, one, I think that there are three speeds of coaching. Um, I think of them as fixing, guiding, and following. And, you know, m- my work has been largely influenced by this technique that's big in other areas called motivational interviewing. And one of the things that we think about is in this, in this, in this way is one speed is I'm a fixer. So my job is to point out, to help athletes realize what they're doing wrong and to correct it. And certainly that's a fundamental aspect of coaching. Like if you don't know your stuff, if you don't know how to help people in terms of changing their swing or their footwork, you know, you're not going to be able to help them if you don't have knowledge and ability to observe that. But the other two speeds are really underdeveloped for most coaches. And those other two speeds are number one, following, which means listening well. And listening well isn't just keeping your mouth shut, which is a big part of it. But keep listening well is also being able to be reflective to the person. So when someone says, you know, like this was, just, I just don't know why it was a tough game. Um, you know, you could say, oh, you'll get it better next time. Don't worry. Or you could say, wow, yeah, you were struggling. So that level of reflective listening is something that a lot of people don't know how to do. And even the best of us, even me, when I'm off base, uh, you know, they don't really, they aren't able to, to really do that. Um, the, second, the second thing um, there, the other speed is, is guiding. So what guiding really is, is to be able to say, hey, you know, like my job here is not just to tell, but also to see if I can pull forth from the athlete or the person I'm coaching, the CEO, the person on my team, whoever it is, as a coach, to, to help them to talk about or articulate what they're, what's important to them. My belief is 90% of the time, people know the right answer themselves. And if you're really doing a good job at listening and asking the right questions at the right time, they're going to tell you rather than Bob for apples here and close my eyes and try to you know, pick one. They're going to reach in and say, here, here's the, here's what I really think I need to do. And then there from that point, then we can, we can do more fixing because then we can say, okay, cool. Well, you know, here, you know, I have some ideas. And even then, you know, in, in, in motivational interviewing, which is a technique we use, we have a special method for doing that, which is asking permission. So, we say, hey, you know, I have a few um, thoughts that have been really helpful for other athletes or other people on, a, on, on this kind of team or, you know, other firefighters, whoever it is. How would you feel if I shared them with you? Now, that framework for giving advice is much more, um, people are much more accepting of it. And so when I think about the three speeds, I think we get caught in that one speed of being a fixer and don't really develop these skills of being a guider or a follower. And as I'm hearing you talk about fixing in clinical psychology, when they're training people, they often try to get them not to give advice, not to fix, uh, to really ask great questions to help the person work from the inside out. 
And when I first started doing this work, I really struggled with that because I thought, well, if I have an idea, I should give it to the person. And it took me a long time uh, doing this work to actually realize that, okay, if I have something that I notice or that I observe, it's okay to share it and say, hey, I noticed this, I observed that. What, what's that about? But the truth is a lot of times the answer that I would come up with was not as strong as when I'd ask a question and they'd come up with an answer. That was where the genius lied. And so I learned that it's not about holding back what my answer is. It's more about digging deeper with the person to find out what the answer is because they know their craft better than I do. And they actually can come up with a better solution a lot of times. And so that, that framework is really clean and, and really cool. And I'm glad you brought up motivational interviewing. And I think it's good for all leaders to think about where am I on that scale? And there is a time to fix, especially for sports coaches, right? Their job is to show someone when they're doing it wrong and they have to point it out, but they also can have multiple speeds. They don't need to just have a fastball. They should have a fastball, a curveball, a changeup, and have that agility or that flexibility to play in different spaces in different areas. I want to go back though to this conversation about working with leaders and working with coaches compared to working with performers. Um, and, and look, I understand that a coach can be a performer, but there's a different focus from an execution level from an athlete compared to a coach and the impact that a coach can have, as I said, on building a culture and cultivating a culture. Um, and so as you think about your job today, how much of your time is working with people that are then going and you're, having that transcendence where you're impacting them and then they're impacting others compared to how much are you in the weeds with the people that are actually doing the execution. And this is something you hear a lot in business where are you working on the business or in the business? Are you strategizing or are you making sales? Uh, that friction I think is complex for a lot of human beings. So I'm curious about where you spend most of your time. Are you working with people who are working on it or are you working with people that are working in it? Um, both, I'd say, I would say it's probably more, uh, people who are working on it. I mean, more with leaders, um, I would say, but a lot of the engagements I have these days are working with like a, working with a corporation where my belief is that, you know, one of the things I learned, uh, you know, at working with large organizations like the Mets, um, or the Giants, you know, is that. I think for it to be effective, it has to be top down and bottom up. Meaning like if you're going to change the, the zeitgeist, if you're going to change the culture, um, you know, you really should be working with people who are working at every level of an organization. And so I think, you know, in, in the most effective situations, you're working with the head coach, you're working with the coaches, you're working with the athletes. Um, most of the time now, these days I'm working with the, the head coaches or the, the CEOs. Um, but I think it's most effective when everybody's hearing it, because really, what are you trying to do? I mean, most of the time people are trying to do things like increase communication on their teams and increase buy-in to a, a common goal. Um, these are the things that we know from military settings and other settings that are the most effective things in terms of making a team more competitive. And if that's going to happen, really everybody has to learn this new language, whatever that new language is. And so I think of myself as, you know, most effective when I can, when I can really work with both the leader and also the people who are under them. And just so people that are listening to this, let's say they're in an organization, can you go a little deeper into the mechanics of what that work looks like? Uh, the actual, you know, you spend a day with a company, like what are you actually doing and, and where are you actually spending your time? 
I mean, I think that my, my, most of my engagements involve two components. One is, you know, I'm really doing day-to-day -day coaching, one-on-one -on -one meeting with the leadership team. That, that looks like I'm sitting down with them for, you know, 45 minutes once a week and hearing about, see what happens is people in leadership have no, they don't have an advisor usually. Like a head coach or a, you know, they have bosses, but oftentimes they don't have like, they don't have a mentor. Uh, they don't have someone that they can really talk to. There's no one to talk to. And so as you were talking about, what I was, I was thinking what you're talking about is, it's really about being self-reflective. And that as we're talking about, people know their answers, but they don't have a coach. Coaches don't have coaches. Um, same is true, you know, I've had to, I woke up a couple of times in my career and realized, whoa, I'm a sports psychologist, I'm a performance college psychologist here, I, you know, I'm coaching all these people. And at times I've said, you know what, I really need a coach. And, I, and there have been times where I've hired someone to um, help me think about my performance. Certainly that's been helpful at times when I've had a big presentation to give, um, to help me think through how to approach it and to get better at the way I'm delivering it. But so, Brian, I think for, first and foremost, it's creating a self-reflective space for the leadership, and that involves what, like a weekly meeting with them, sometimes a, a weekly meeting with the whole leadership team, but all, often and almost always with like the, the, key, the key personnel, CEO, COO type person. Um, and then typically what happens is I'll have uh, group meetings, and the group meetings have two purposes. One first and foremost, increase what we call psychological safety. Um, so much of the research shows that if you increase psychological safety, which means psychological safety is, um, I feel okay to take a risk in a group setting. I can be creative. I can say things without too much fear of being criticized or rebuked for my comment. And psychological safety leads to more trust, leads to higher satisfaction at work, leads to all kinds of, it's a key indicator of how long people stay in organizations, how, how successful they are. So these group meetings are designed to create that. And that can be anything from, you know, having like playing a game to having like, I've had people do freestyle rap bot battles. So we're getting back to like, you know, um, MC Levinson type thing here. Uh, it could be anything. But, or it could just be, you know, I've had people actually, one of the things I sometimes do is if I'm working with a team for the first time, I'll have everybody bring in their favorite quote and explain why. Um, but these interactions can be super simple, but it's basically saying, who are you beyond who you are as your job? And, you know, creating more engagement. In, in motivational interviewing, we think about it, that there are phases to relationship development that we often jump into the planning. Like, this is what I need you to do. Remember the transactional idea. But before that, there are these phases that I have to develop. And the first phase is engagement. Do I know who this person is who I'm asking to do this thing? Do I have any kind of connection with them? Same is true with, you know, I find that in, in sports, um, people are willing to do anything for people they trust and respect. I mean, they will play their hearts out um, for that kind of person. And so similarly, you know, what we're trying to do with those group meetings is create more uh, connectivity. And you know, you don't need a ropes course or trust falls to do that. You just need a, a group of people that's willing to share a little bit more about themselves and in like in a comfortable and kind of relaxed way. And, and so those are the two kind of elements. And then depending on the size of the organization, you know, we have a large team here at Sports Strata. And so 
sometimes, you know, people on, on our team will coach people at a lower level uh, as well. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is just space. Uh, giving a CEO or a COO or a CFO space to actually think uh, and to actually be still for a little bit and reflective and to have somebody asking them questions is massive. And I think it's a lonely journey uh, for those people, just like a head coach. Um, it can be lonely. And so I love that you're just talking about space. And what I'm hearing you say is like, we're creating a space and environment where these people can learn, they can grow, they can develop skills that will help them in their job and also away from their job. You mentioned sports for sports strata and you mentioned you developing yourself through the years and getting coached and getting help. I think you're unique in our field because I've been to your office. It's this beautiful office and there's a lot of people. You're running a big organization. And so I want to flip this a little bit and learn from you as far as what that's been like to build out your own team and what it's been like to be you know, the, the head of an organization and to build that out. And I, I just want to leave it open-ended to kind of get your perspective on, on what that's been like for you. Uh, it's been exciting. I mean, it's been really super fun and exciting. I think, you know, part of it is that it's been that one, one of the things is when I'm thinking about it, I was thinking about what you said about what it's been like to build that and the people I was actually feeling a tremendous amount of gratitude because, you know, when we started this, this podcast and when we started talking, we had all these technical difficulties and I literally had this like surgical team around me of people trying to like plug things in. And, you know, I just, I feel really grateful that I get to do this with people and people who care about each other. I mean, straight up, this, the people at this, you know, there's sports strategy and engineering square practice, which is more mental health focused. And, you know, it's 25 of us and people really care about each other here and are really, you know, interested in each other's lives. So I, it's been exciting. And one of the things that I've really been most excited about is creating an environment that embodies the values that I have, you know, because, you know, you can put things on like a glass paperweight or you can and say like these are our mission statement or you can just create activities um you know i'm a big believer in 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 doing things in action and i think in 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 the work that we've done here in developing this we've really done some things for example you know we we have um a weekly mindfulness group that everybody comes to um and we each week i lead it sometimes but then other people on the team lead it and we really the purpose here is to say like look if this is what we're recommending to high performers and athletes this is something that should be helpful to us and it really is so we all get together in my office here and um and someone leads it we either someone we lie down on mats we sit on meditation cushions whatever the person who wants to lead it uh does it's awesome sometimes people show up i mean like if someone someone's kid is visiting they'll come and they'll come to it it's just a really cool thing and so I think that's been really useful. I think the other things that stand out to me in my mind that's, that I think about is that, you know, there are parts of it that can be stressful. You know, it can be stressful to take on the responsibility. I mean, you have, you're leading a team of 25 people and you're really responsible for all kinds of things about their well-being, from health insurance to, um, you know, ordering lunch for meetings. I mean, whatever, like at the buck eventually stops with us so anyway i think the thing that i think about and you know not to mention like you know real estate in new york and i mean you know it's just like a lot of stuff so um i think the thing that i think about though is that luckily i feel really blessed that i've been exposed to the kind of 
techniques and experiences I've had because I just view stress differently and I view uh, opportunity differently. And so when I do feel overwhelmed, which I sometimes do, or I do feel stressed, which I sometimes do, I just look at it differently. I, I think of it as um, something that is just sort of a part of my life. And I think of it as like, I'm so happy to pay that price of that stress. I, I feel grateful to have the stress basically. Like, I don't like it, but when I, when, as things grow, I feel like, oh, cool. This is such a great opportunity to have this. And then the last thing that comes to mind too is that I have like an amazing partner, a business partner here who we've built this together. Uh, you know, he and I have worked together. Uh, he's a psychiatrist. And I think w when I think about the work that we've done together, I just think, as I said before, fun fundamentally, I think everything's about relationships. And so, you know, we've just been working together on different projects now for, you know, uh, 12 years or something like that. And um, it's really exciting to have a thought partner in all this. And I feel that way about people who aren't even partners in this business. I feel that way about people on the team who are excited and, and collaborative. And so um, I think I've really, I've grown a lot and I've been able to really, you know, part of the reason I'm so interested in, in coaching leaders and, and CEO development and uh, emotional intelligence is because I've had to really learn and develop those things myself, managing not, you know, a, a Fortune 500 company, but certainly having to really help develop people and uh, think about what, what makes things tick at a, at a group practice like this. You mentioned the mindfulness practice that you guys do. What else do you, because you said it's about doing, what else do you do as an organization to make sure that your culture is where you want it to be? A lot. I mean, a lot. We work on it all the time. Um, I just, you know, sometimes I say to athletes that I say, like, your routine is your masterpiece. And I think, you know, I, I think that our, our culture is our, our masterpiece here more than anything else. So specifically, well, first of all, I mean, I always think about, you know, the doing thing. I mean, there's a great quote. It's, I think it's Jane Austen who said, you know, it's not the things that you think or say that define you, but what you do. And, you know, I certainly have many, many thoughts and aspirations, but in my life and in, I think in here at Sports Strata and just our practice at, at Union Square Practice, I think that the thing that defines us is what we actually do. So um, we, what I mean by that is scheduled time. So I was, I was tease people, CEOs and other people. I say like, look, your, your work life is scheduled back to back, but I guarantee you when you leave, you don't do the same kind of scheduling, rigorous scheduling for yourself and rigorous scheduling for your loved ones. And so I believe that, you know, in order to be successful in these other areas of life, you really have to really create a system in the same way that you, the same attention that you give to your sport, you have to give that same attention to your relationship. You have to give that same attention to this. So, we, we just have a number of different scheduled things. So we've, we had a lot of thought. The other meeting that we have, we have like a group meeting where everybody comes together. And what we've done there is we, every week something else cycles through. So we have one thing we do, it's called gifts and games. And so we literally play a game together. And then we have a gift. And the gift is that someone in the room teaches a new skill to the, everybody else in the room. So someone says, hey, uh, I learned this new mindfulness technique or Hey, I, I have the story that I've been telling golfers or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, or, or here's something that, um, or an article, I read this article that, about this evidence-based treatment for something or other. Um, uh, and then we do another, 
another meeting that's just about uh, in that cycle where it's just about talking about different people that we're working with and essentially kind of talking about the relationship more than the content. Um, the other thing we, we do is we have kind of like a quarterly group outing that we all get together and do something. And, um, you know, like we went to the beach or we actually went to see Free Solo, that, that uh, climbing movie, which is totally crazy. But that's just so topical for some of the stuff that, you know, we, uh, we do. Um, and, and then we have two other meetings during the week, which are more about coming together and getting specific advice for, you know, coaching different people. When you set out with your partner a dozen years ago to build this thing, what was the vision back then? I think the vision was that, you know, fundamentally and still is the vision to create a, a group practice where people were really pumped to come to, um, that like people want it really were wanting to go to work. Um, and that, um, we were doing something different in the way that we were offering, um, help to people. And fundamentally, I think those differences are, um, to be real people and to incorporate humor and enthusiasm, as you said, but also to incorporate that kind of MI spirit to really be good at listening that, you know, I mean, you know, my, my business partner here is a psychiatrist and has a lot of knowledge. You know, we have a neurologist. We have all kinds of people here who do all kinds of interesting work. Um, we're doing everything here from biofeedback to this new form of treatment for depression called TMS, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. So we're doing everything. But, you know, I think that fundamentally none of that matters unless we're really good at listening and connecting to people. And so the vision is and was and still is that we're, we're hiring, recruiting and developing people that are doing that, whether they're doing sport and performance work or helping people with depression, it, it doesn't matter that, you know, fundamentally the first foot forward is one of empathy and connectivity and listening. Um, and going back to a point you had, you know, really getting good at resisting that urge to share ideas before the person is ready. Um, getting really good at um, helping to, you know, I really believe that people are the experts on themselves. I tell people that when they come in to see me, I say, look, you know, you're the expert on you. And one of the reasons I do this is to disarm them, because if I'm talking to an NBA player or something, they sit down there, their legs dangling, making my couch look like a, you know, like a matchbox. You know, the last thing I'm going to do is say like, hey, listen, I know about, you know, playing point guard more than you. Like it's insanity, right? So, and that's true, I think, of a CEO. Like, I don't know what it's like. I, I really don't know what it's like to run a, a $4 billion hedge fund or to, you know, I, that's not something I know, nor do I know what it's like to coach Little League. Never done it, right? My kids are a tennis player and a basketball player, and, you know, they're, I, I just, I've never coached. So um, it's really saying, like, I'm going to really connect with this person in front of me. When you think about the next dozen years, what do you think, your organization will look like? Um, hopefully it won't be underwater. Um, literally, literally underwater. Literally underwater. Um, like hopefully we won't be flooded by the polar ice caps. Um, other than that, I think that my organization, I think that we will, you know, be headed more in the direction of um, two things. I think one is continuing to develop novel treatments for mental health whether that's, um, you know, ketamine assisted, uh, therapy or 
TMS or these other things we're working on. And I think the other thing that we're really, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll continue to do and do even at a wider, more impactful way is um, really disseminate and teach other people who are not in, in mainline sports, but are in business and firefighting and medicine, that there are these skills that you can use from, from the mental skills that we teach you know, in uh, sports, whether it has to do with goal setting and mindfulness or uh, imagery and self-talk and self-statements, these things that we do on a regular basis, that there are these routines you can build that can, you can help you in your day-to-day life. That's one, and, and that those things can translate to your satisfaction off your field, right? Like not at work, at home. And I'm really pumped about, you know, the work we're doing in motivational interviewing. This is a real easy to learn, not well, easy to learn, maybe I'm soft selling it. It's a, it's a thing that anyone can learn. You don't it's have to have- Simplistic. It's simple at its heart. It's hard to do. I mean, it's, but you know, it's like, it's sort of like chess. Like I can teach you the basics of it. You get lifetime to master type thing, but, but that, you know, any coach can learn it. Any, any parent can learn it. And often, you know, when I share the stuff we're writing about motivational interviewing with coaches, they say, this is awesome, but it's going to be even more awesome for me and my kids. It's so cool. You've been around elite performers. So you talked about the Mets and the Giants and uh, you've been around firefighters and people that have been on wires walking across, you know, skyscrapers. And so you've been around some elite of elite performers, people that are doing things that a lot of people that are listening to this podcast will never do or don't believe that they could ever do. And I'm just curious for you, have there been moments that you have really experienced awe? And when you have experienced those moments of awe, I'd love to just find out what that's been like for you. I mean, I was in awe with the Walendas. Um, so as you, you were talking about, you know, that, that, I mean, maybe it's just as you brought it up, because I can certainly remember moments of awe from my days in football and baseball. But the, the, that Walenda experience was, I was in complete awe. Um, so Nick and, and, and Liana Walenda, uh, brother and sister team, who are part of the Walenda family, they're a, a high wire um, walkers. And so they've done these amazing feats walking over Niagara Falls, et cetera, walking between different buildings. They, they, um, Liana had a, a very traumatic fall in Las Vegas. This was a couple of years ago and broke all the bones in her face and some bones in her leg and um, took a step back from, from high wire walking. But her and Nick um, over the summer in June walked across Times Square and I had the opportunity to be involved in this, this um, amazing feat. And, I, you know, I, I mean, certainly I was in awe of them completing that, just sitting there, you know, on Times Square on this building and watching them walk across, you know, however many, 25 stories in the air, walk across a wire the size of a quarter was harrowing. I mean, literally, you know, I mean, I've been on the field in a NFL playoff game. I've been, you know, in bat, sitting there, standing there, batting practice, the World Series with the Mets, and my heart was racing a little bit. But this was like beyond. Um, and so many of the elements of that are the same elements we talk about with with performers. That there was so many people watching, and the stakes were so high that I, it, I was definitely in awe. But I'd have to say, Brian, that almost more of my awe came from just observing them as people. And, you know, if your routine is your masterpiece, I mean, these people are 
painting Van Goghs and you know Rembrandts everywhere they went. I mean, they were just so incredibly focused and so incredibly powerful in their faith. Um, and uh, they're religious people, so that too, but just in their faith in, in themselves and their ability to connect. They had this thing um, that was really fascinating to me where they would listen to gospel music before their walk and then listen to gospel music uh, during their walk. Um, and one of the songs they listened to had this chorus was saying that fear is a liar. And I, was, I thought that was so fascinating, this idea of fear being a liar and their ability to kind of master their fear. Because um, at, the, at the fundamental level, that's what gets in the way for all of us, right? Whether we're on the high wire or uh, a major league baseball player or whether we're a parent, you know, I think what gets in our way is, is fear. And their ability to just metabolize that, to get through it was just definitely awe-inspiring, awesome. So I've, I've studied them because I think they're fascinating. And when they were doing, when Nick was doing the walk across the Grand Canyon, there was a lot of TV production. I know there was a lot of TV production also with, with what you're talking about. But I remember watching that special because he talked about preparing with wind and preparing with all of the elements that could occur when he's walking across the Grand Canyon. And by the way, for people that don't know, I mean, there's no safety net or or anything as he's doing this i mean he's risking his life as he's doing this um and so i'm curious for you what did you notice in his preparation or in both of their preparation that they did to get to that place to truly believe that fear is a liar and to be what the observer watches is fearlessness what the observer watches is ease uh like there's there was a comfort level as they walk across that wire that is unbelievable for the observer take us behind the scenes as far as their preparation what did you see that went into that uh before they even execute on the performance well yeah i mean i i hear you because like who couldn't study those folks i mean they're first of all i mean they're i mean their family history right like seven generations uh, one of the things i just think about is like what if there were seven generations of any sport right like Really, like let's say let's say there's seven generations of there, you, you can't you can't really point to that many sports where you have seven generations of people um, doing that. So I think that that's part of it too. Actually, like I think that there's a certain development that happens over the transgenerationally. As far as preparation goes, when I look at anything, forget about the Walendas for a second. I just look at all the athletes I've worked with, all the CEOs I work with. Um, I think that fundamentally, the, the thing that we have the most control over um, is practice. Um, and there's so much, as you know, literature, especially, I think the person at, at, um, 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 that talks about this a lot is the guy who wrote Peak, Anderson, um, uh, so, who talks about, um, you know, basically the idea of purposeful practice. Right, and so in, you know the idea of purposeful practice is um, that you know we're really mentally there while we're practicing. And so what I saw with Nick was, you know, he got there days before and just spent hours and hours walking around Times Square, walking the road, feeling out spatially what was going to go on, acclimating to the situation. Um, you know, there are other things that he did mentally um that were i think there but to me actually because we talk about mental preparation 
to me, I think people will get too confused about that. They think it's like, oh, that's just about, you know, imagery, like mental practice, which they do. Um, and, you know, self-talk, which I saw them do, certainly. But to me, the most impressive thing, Brian, was, look, you know, what would it be like for me? Like, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about the next thing that you're going to do, right, like in your life, what, if I practiced at that level, like, I'm probably going to be more comfortable when I do it. And I think that's the biggest mistake people don't do. They don't practice in the correct way. They don't practice mentally. They practice physically, but they're not practicing mentally, right? So they might, like if, the, if you're going to give a talk, you might go over the lines and memorize them. But that's a very mechanical way to practice. It's like if I give a talk, I try to get up on, in the situation where I'm going to be giving the talk and actually go through it in the same way that I'm going to do it when I do it. And I think people, my, my sense is that people don't really do that as much as they really should, um, especially when, they, and actually especially when they become experts because they just wing it. They're like, oh, I've done this before. Yeah, I love that that, that last part because experts are good enough. So in order, to, they are good enough. They're talented enough at that point that they don't need to. But I think the difference between someone that's good and someone that's great is the great ones continue to go back and, and work on their craft and hone it and for lack of a better word, perfected. And they go into that space so that when they get back on the wire, they can adapt to whatever is needed. I have a framework that I use where your mindset for preparation is actually different than your mindset for performance. So fear is a liar is fearlessness. When I'm on that wire, I need to have a level of fearlessness. It's a liar. But what Nick was doing before he even went on the wire is respecting that that wire can kill him. And like, I need to be aware that if I fall from that, like, that is the ultimate. It, it, so there needs to be some fear of failure in the preparation. Like I'm not going to fail and I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that I'm in a good space so that when I get on that wire, I can just execute and be fearless and perform. And, you know, when I watch people like him or you mentioned free, you know, Alex Handel and, and free solo who, who same type of thing, like <laughs> climbing up mountains without any harness. Uh, or when I even watch, you know, the, the surgeons or the lawyers or the business people that are elite of elite at what they do, there is this level of preparation mind and shifting out of that in the performance. Um, so I, I love that you shared that experience and it was, it's cool that you were able to observe them and witness them up close and personal. I want to just end and start to finish with uh, giving you a megaphone to promote whatever it is you're passionate about, uh, whatever you, you think deserves some promotion. You mentioned Scott Barry Kaufman earlier and I don't know him personally, but I do want to give him a shout out because the work that he is doing in the world of psychology is incredible. And uh, he has an amazing podcast that people can listen to. I think it's called The Psychology Podcast. Uh, you know, and he writes a ton of articles. And I think he's somebody that just is moving humanity forward and is someone who I think challenges what we consider to be the status quo and pushes back. And uh, so without knowing him, I'm just grateful. Uh, that you mentioned him because I think others should be following along on, on his journey as well. But, but I want you to promote what you're up to, uh, what you're most passionate about. And I uh, just want to give you a megaphone to do so. Scott's great. And I think his book is coming out or is out sometime soon. So I would check that out. And his podcast is amazing as well. His, his blog is incredible. I don't know how the guy does it. Um, yeah. Dangerous to give me a megaphone. I actually once had a megaphone. Um, I, I bought a megaphone in grad school and I, I drove a cab in grad school and I, I would just go around and just like 
say things to people, you know, just be like, Hey, that's an amazing outfit, man. You know, just like walking, you just driving down in Seattle doing that. So did you freestyle? Thing. Did you freestyle with the megaphone? I don't think I did. You know, it was just not the right sound and it was hard to get like a beat into the megaphone going there, but that's like next level, man. That, that'll be the, you know, one, one of these days when I come back for, for episode two on the Levinson, if I'm ever invited back here, I'll, I'll bring the megaphone and we'll do a megaphone. So what would I like to shout out? I mean, I guess, you know, it's funny because it feels natural because we've been talking about it the whole time. But to me, I think as a, as a human, forget about coach or people in sports, as a human, if you're really interested in, in communicating better, to me, motivational interviewing is, is the most comprehensive framework for getting to the meat, getting to the center of what is important in, in empathic relationship-based coaching and communication. And so luckily, you know, if that's something you're interested in, there's a book coming out um, with myself and also co-authored with two other people, uh, three other people, one of them being Steve Rolnick, who's the co-creator of Motivational Interviewing. It's called Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best, Motivational Interviewing in Sport. It's by Guilford, is the publisher, and it's coming out. It'll, it'll be out in November. You can buy it in, on Amazon or on the Guilford website, Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best, Motivational Interviewing in Sport. Awesome. And if people want to follow you on social media, where would they do that? You can find me on Instagram. It's just Jonathan under, underscore Fader, or you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's at Dr. Fader, at D-R-F-A-D-E-R. Well, Fader, uh, we'll, we'll spare the freestyle maybe for, maybe we'll just do one episode where we just freestyle and go back and forth. I don't forth. think we're sparing it. I think we're postponing. We're like, we're going to, we're dropping a little like, you know, a hook here for people to listen to like, you know, Fader Aid part two on, on the B-Lev, on MC B-Lev show. If I'm being completely honest, the most of my freestyles have involved um, a, a little bit of help, uh, a little performance enhancement from maybe a cocktail. Um, and I don't really drink cocktails much anymore. I just kind of drink wine. So I don't even know how my flow is when I have some wine. But, you know, I'm down to do a sober, sober freestyle competition and uh, see, see what comes up. Uh, but when I freestyle, everything just is super fast. So emotional regulation, if we're talking about the Yerkes and Dodson inverted U theory, like I'm at like a nine, man. And for those that don't know, it stems from like a one to 10 and a one is you're basically like sleepy and not that intense. And a 10 being you're super jacked up. Think of Ray Lewis. Um, I, I go like toward the Ray Lewis. Like I just go rip and I might screw up, but I'm just going to keep going kind of Eminem without calling myself anywhere near Eminem. But uh, this has been super fun. Uh, I think the only thing I'll end with is like later fader. I think that works for, uh, for what, we're, what we're doing today. And uh, just really grateful to connect with you. You gave me time when I came up to New York City and uh, early in my career and uh, have helped me. And, and hopefully you'll continue to be a resource for me as I continue to find my way in this journey of performance psychology. And uh, thank you for all you're doing for the field and for everybody that works, for, works with you at your office. I think um, it's it's inspiring to see what you and your partner have created. And hopefully people are inspired by listening to this conversation and, and learned a thing or two. I know I did. So thank you for your time and, and grateful to get to know you. Hey, it's a pleasure. Uh, be love. And uh, let's, let's get back on and uh, get that freestyle session on And thanks for what you said, man. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. To get to know you. more. Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And then you can listen to all these episodes at intentionalperformers.com. Fader, see you later. Later, man. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. 
Here is this week's episode jam. Um, I just, you know, sometimes I say to athletes that I say like, your routine is your masterpiece. And I think, you know, I, I think that our, our culture is our, our masterpiece here more than anything else. So specifically, well, first of all, I mean, I always think about, you know, the doing thing. I mean, there's a great quote, it's, I think it's Jane Austen who said, you know, it's not the things that you think or say that define you, but what you do. And, you know, I certainly have many, many thoughts and aspirations, but in my life and in, I think in here at Sports Strata and just our practice at, at Municipal Practice, I think that the thing that defines us is what we actually do. 